Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. Today I spoke to John BD. I'm tempted to try and give you a summary of some of the dozens of stories he shares, but I really couldn't do it justice. Just know John is an adventurer and mountain climber who has summited the largest peak on each continent, and he's been through hell and back a couple times. He recounts many terrifying moments, um, loss, death, teamwork, panic, civil wars, malaria, being saved by the Secretary of State, almost getting killed by a charging lion. It's freaking bonkers. He also shares the pure joy and satisfaction of achieving some incredible goals. Now, if you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. Give it a rating in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. The next episodes will include a VP of sales from Cisco, an attorney turned entrepreneur, and then someone who became an entrepreneur when his back was against the wall after the birth of his extremely premature daughter. I'll talk with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and philosophies, and of course their approach to being dads. All right, time to hear from John. Enjoy. Sean, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, man. You have uh, climbed the tallest mountain on each continent. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a crazy thing in hindsight, but it's also something that like I wasn't, I wasn't surprised by after I was visualizing it and planning it and making 10 years of dedication towards it. So it's kind of just like, yeah, that's wow. just, that's, you know, it's, it's, it makes sense. It's just like, that was a part of my story. It's, so it's not that crazy to me any longer. It's kind of normalized at this point. Wow. I, I heard something where this is more people have er- orbited the earth from the space station than have climbed the tallest mountain on every continent. Yeah, it's it's like a race uh, between space orbiters and seven summiters where like since Tesla uh, has been sending more and more uh, people to space and now there's space tourism starting. Now it's like back to more orbiters in space. But for a while, seven summiters were ahead. But at the current trajectory, it looks like we're going to keep winning the, the fewer category, which is kind of fun to be in that class. Wow. So I, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um you've not only are you an incredible climber but you've also written a handful of books and most recently you published a book that teaches young boys about developing kindness courage and grit which i think is super important and in fact when i when i saw your book i immediately bought a copy of it um so my my boys are excited to read it as soon as they finish up the books they're currently working on so um, Amazing. Well, thanks for the thanks for the purchase and and yeah, this is a rite of passage. This book, it's a it's a manual for young men to grow up as, I mean, it's called the Warrior Challenge. So it's to train young men to grow up as warriors in their world, and that doesn't mean fighting with violence. It means fighting with their values and standing up for what's right and what's good. That's awesome, man. Really excited to get into all of it. Um, maybe what we can do is start with your experience climbing and then we'll we'll touch on some of the how that translated into your um works that you've written so 
could you tell us like how did you get into climbing and and then kind of walk us through your progression from novice climber to top-notch uh, world-class climber yeah i actually have a huge smile on my face right now because i feel like saying the one thing that i say at the start of every trailhead and that's let's go climbing <laughs> let's make it happen um so i started climbing when i was um 14 years old with the boy scouts and uh, it was simply rappelling off of the side of a cliff and i was absolutely terrified it's this 180 foot tall cliff that they threw a rope over and it was completely out of my comfort zone and something in that like white knuckle gripping of wrapping down that line and reaching the bottom and going oh my gosh what just happened i'm terrified but i knew that i grew from it that's what hooked me to climbing so now fast forward in in a higher pace i became a rock climber started climbing at red rock canyon where i live here in um in henderson nevada or outside of las vegas um, and then rock climbing progressed into mountaineering. I'm 23 years old. My buddy invites me on a trip to go climb the Grand Teton. We had no idea what we were doing. Sean, I swear to you, our plan was because all we had was two harnesses and a rope and climbing shoes. We didn't have any gear because we couldn't afford it. We could barely even afford the gas to get there. But we arrived at the mountain. And our, our plan was if one thing goes, if something goes wrong for somebody else and they fall, it's the other person's job to jump around with the rope around the closest rock you can find so that we can pendulum <laughs> and stop the other person's fall and like that idiocy total idiocy of climbing um like somehow we survived it but that was my path forward in a in a nutshell of making mistakes fumbling through it somehow surviving and then biting off bigger and bigger mountains until i was fully ready and confident that Everest was the, the right mountain to climb. Uh, that was 2013. And in 2018, I climbed this, the last of the seven summits, which was in, Ant in Antarctica. It's called Vincent Massif. Most people call it Mount Vincent. And, um, and that, was, that was the end of my transition in my mind from boyhood to manhood. Wow. Um what was it like showing up it was was everest first let's ask is was everest the first one that you climbed of the seven peaks no everest was the the fifth of the seven summits that i successfully climbed um it, i've climbed hundreds of mountains uh in my life i've climbed all over the west coast and in colorado up 14ers throughout the canadian rockies and alaska um, and so for anybody who thinks like, ah, I'll just go straight to Everest. I think that's a, I think that's a real reckless, rash decision. Um, and you're, you're putting the cart before the horse, you're putting yourself at risk and you're putting other climbers at risk if you go straight to Everest. Um, and I kind of had an inkling of that before going, but having been there, I think that's definitely the case. It's also the case where people waste the most amount of effort and time and money. Um, by trying to go straight to Everest without having a bunch of other mountains of experience under their belt. Hmm. How much of when you're when you're climbing the top peaks in each continent, like how much of it is straight up hiking versus like being tied to a rope and moving really steep in ice versus like being on the edge of a cliff? Um, 
like what does it look like as far as terrain? I imagine it's a mix of all of those, but what does a um, typical mountain present when you need to climb? We have five classes of climbing class or of, of movement in terrain. I should say class one would be like, Hey, I'm walking down the sidewalk. Class two would be a hiking trail. Class three, you might need your hands for balance once in a while. Uh, we call it scrambling. Um, fourth class is you should be on a rope. If you fall without that rope attached, you're probably going to be maimed or killed. And then fifth class climbing is what you see. Um, it's classic rock climbing. Um, y y there are some like subdivisions once you get into fifth class where we, we break down the difficulty and there's also aid climbing, which is like using equipment to pull yourself up. Um, but to get to your, your question specifically, mountaineering mostly is um, third class uh, where you've got second and third class. So you're, you're on trail and you've got hiking poles and ice axe. The ice axe is there in case you take a fall because you need to stop yourself from sliding down a, a glacier field or a snow slope. Otherwise, you'd go off some cliff. Um, and when it comes to the fourth and fifth class, usually there are features that require rock climbing or where you should be on a rope. Um, but it's not the full duration of, of the climb itself. Because you're on these mountains for okay. 15 days, 18 days. I mean, Everest was two months. Um, and so you're certainly not hanging like portal edge on the side of a cliff like El Capitan and Yosemite on, on these seven summits. Okay. Wow. Do you, when you think of the seven summits, aside from Everest, which, like, what are the top, two or three that kind of stand out to you for in terms of just being really memorable, like maybe it was a beautiful country, maybe it was a fun climb, maybe it was um, something, you know, beautiful scenery or something interesting happened while you were there. Like I'd love to hear a couple stories from some of the maybe lesser known peaks. Um, that's an awesome question. They're all so memorable in such different ways that ping one down is kind of difficult to, to do. But Karsten's Pyramid is the first one that I want to mention because it's um, in the middle of a jungle where Western civilization hasn't yet reached. So there are still guys meandering around the jungle in tribal uh, communities. They're wearing loincloths and gourds, which are really bamboo shoots around their penises and they're just running around the, the, I mean, they're not running, but they're like, they're living in the jungle, um, subsiding off of the, the fruits that the plants put off and they're hunting wild goats and pigs. And this is, this is the life that they leave. They're spear fishing, uh, and, and bringing up fish and, and to experience life for 10 days walking towards the mountain with a community, with a tribe. And they brought the entire tribe with, um, with them, there's like a hundred people walking through the jungle, this whole community, um, escorting us as guides to the base of this climb was a phenomenal experience. They're picking fruits off of trees and I've never seen these things before. And they're splitting them open and saying, this is how you eat it. This is what you eat all through sign language or like makeshift sign language, because we don't speak the same language other than a few words. Um, and then, you know, some of the hunters would go off into the jungle and bring back a pig and we'd eat that or they'd, uh, um, <laughs> Like it was just wild. Like you see them crossing a bridge and some a spear lands next to you and uh, lo and behold, connected to the spear, there's a fish. Like that was a pretty cool experience. Um, and then after we, cl after we climbed, a war broke out between two tribes and 
um, we had to get extricated through uh, the world's largest gold mine, which is a whole fiasco in itself because they didn't want anything to do with us. And it's not their job at all to, to rescue climbers. So I totally get their perspective. But those those were just some that was an intense experience that's uh, off Whoa. the beaten track. And it's like, what the heck happened? Um, was so that in, in South America or Africa? That's in Indonesia. So the tallest mountain in Australasia uh, includes the continent of Australia. Uh, the, the tallest mountain in Australia includes the full continent, the, uh, the shelf um, of, of Australasia, which includes Indonesia and several of those islands. We used to think that it included New Zealand, but now there's, an, there's another, another continent apparently called Zealandia. Um, so anyway, uh, the tallest mountain in Australia is actually in, in Indonesia. Uh, and it's called Karsten's Pyramid, and it's glaciated. Back in the day when early explorers saw it, they were called completely crazy and lunatics, and their explorations and the mapping that they had done was discounted because they put glaciers in the tropics, and everybody said, oh, that's ridiculous. You were way off course. Well, it turns out they were right. There are glaciers there um, because of wow. the altitude gain. Yeah, it's really an amazing it's thing. It's so high. Yeah, the rise. I mean, these are just like fresh new mountains that shoot straight out of the jungle, uh, and they get so tall that yeah, glaciers are up there. It's like it's sixteen, seventeen thousand feet. And for perspective, Mount Whitney is the tallest mountain in the contiguous U.S. It's fourteen thousand five hundred ish feet. Wow. So, I'd I want to hear the extraction story of the, like wait. So after you climb the mountain, you're coming down. And tribal warfare breaks out, and then <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> the the path to rescue involves like finding a a large company that can provide you some safe haven. Is that? Yeah, I realized I kind of just right? said it casually, like, "Oh, by the way, there's a tribal warfare <laughs> and a gold mine and machine guns, and well, oh, that's how that was that. Let's move on." <laughs> um, so we finished the climb, and as we were walking towards the climb slowly the tribe started breaking away like going back home uh just realizing that they they wanted to, to go back in in small teams and there were probably only six or seven uh members of that tribe with us when we left for the summit we get back down and um they say their goodbyes and say we're going to leave in the morning early and when we woke up after they had already left our um it looked like our 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 boots had been stolen and it's impossible to say like what happened to those boots. Um, but it was for three of our team members. And I think this is like a perfect example of karma because it was the guys who wouldn't hang out with, uh, the group or, or kind of like, weren't wanting to integrate themselves who were, ha who happened to be missing them, their boots. Um, <laughs> like, well, that's what you get boys. So it was like, okay, do we walk out? through the path that we came in without boots for these three and very likely like destroy, I mean, permanently destroy these, these guys' feet because the way in, we're knee deep in swamp muck, sometimes thigh deep, trudging through uh, thick, thick jungle, um, often needing to like machete whack the way through the plant growth. Um, so their, their feet would have just been demolished. And we start um, looking down the ravine or the, the canyon that we're in, I should say. And if you sat still enough, 
you could see people making really fast, sharp movements, and there were guys that were like there were bows and arrows and there were blow darts, but it was only like every three or four hours on a single on one of the days that you could actually see this happening from where we from where we were at the base of the climb. The Indonesian guide who was with us starts calling, making some radio calls and tries to get some additional intel and he got confirmation that there had been a um, some circumstances of events that led to a um, led to fighting. So when I say fighting, it's not like there are lines of troops um, like going head to head at war with each other, like the Civil War or something like that. This is like, imagine a game of paintball where the objective is to kill. Like just one-on-one -on -one running after each other through the, through the jungle. But if we had gone that, if we had gone back out that way, it's very likely that one of us could have been taken hostage um, or all of us with the, with the knowledge that Hostage means ransom, ransom means money, money means win the war. Um, so we knew that we would be at, at high risk, both because our dudes didn't have boots and the risk of being taken hostage. So it's, okay, we got to go the opposite direction, of course. Well, in that opposite direction is the world's largest gold mine. And we went up to them to uh, kind of just like suss out the possibility of what would it look like, or, or is there even an option to go out this way? Um, which leads directly to the town. And um, these guys with machine guns are there saying, nope, can't come through, sorry. But they were super friendly and nice, which was such a sharp contrast. They're just like, they're like, hey, what's up? You guys want some lunch? Yeah, here you go. Nope, you cannot come through. And then they would hold their guns up like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> guess we'll go a different way. Um, and after three days of trying to make s satellite phone calls and pull strings and work in connections that we could from um, friends and family back home, somebody ended up getting through to the then Secretary of State, John Kerry, who basically said, I have better things to deal with, get those guys out, um, and I don't want to hear about it ever again. And somebody ended up putting pressure on the mine, and they ended up letting us, uh, transporting us through. Wow. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it definitely what? was. Man. No wonder that one uh, jumped out as the the first <laughs> peak to tell me about. <laughs> but I, I'm also now very interested to hear about some of the others. Like what? Um, yeah, so you, you asked for two. Uh, and the other one that I think is way more accessible and less danger in case somebody out there is like, I want to go for a climb. I want to make a climb happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to climb Kilimanjaro in 2010 as well as last year i went in 2019 for round two and that's the best mountain for a beginner or a new mountaineer who wants to see what it's like to be out for multiple days most mountains in the u.s take overnight maybe two nights max kilimanjaro takes eight days total uh, and it's a hike there's no technical or vertical climbing and it's a fully international experience where you're living with Sherpa, you're speaking Swahili and basic phrases, or sorry, not Sherpa, porters, porters, excuse me. Um, you're speaking in Swahili to them and, um, and you're being sung to and you're crowd surfing when you, when they, when you summit and they all pick you up and you, then you pick them up and celebrate together. And wow. 
I, I asked my dad if he wanted to go. He was 61 years old at the time. And he was humming and hawing and going, no, I don't think I can. I don't think I should. But slowly I realized oh, he's actually training for it, even though he hadn't committed. He said, I'll choose last minute if I want to go or not, if I feel like I'm up for it. And then finally, um, his wife, my mom, just said, just go. Just like worst case scenario, you fly out and you hang out at uh, um, Moshi, which is the near, the near the town that we left from. You hang out there for a while, but just go. Just go have an adventure. So he gets on the airplane, comes out, and um, we, we got to climb it together. And it was a really amazing experience of going with my dad as my teammate and um, a little bit of role reversal, whereas I grew up with him putting socks and T-shirt on me. Well, and now I was saying, okay, Dad, here are the socks you need to wear this day, and here's the, <laughs> here's the layering you need to put on. And it was a, kind of a, a really beautiful moment where um, we had a, a, a real father-son bonding moment in a beautiful place. We're looking down on elephants and giraffe in the savanna below us, little micro dots that we could see off in the distance and the sunrise coming up over the savanna and, uh, and plowing up towards the glaciers, which will be melted, you know, within 10 years probably as a result of global warming. And we got to experience that and see all of that together. It was a really special moment. That's amazing. You mentioned animals, and that's got me wondering. I'd love, like, when you think about all the different climbs you've made all around the world, um, which interactions with animals come to mind? That could be maybe a freaking anaconda got real close to you, and it was a freaky experience, or, you know, seeing beautiful elephants and zebra, whatever. But, like, when you think of uh, close encounters with animals, what comes to mind? Oh man, I'm, I just got hit with an overwhelm of memories. I've never been asked that question before. That's a great question. Uh, I was 17 and attacked by a giant iguana that fell off of a cliff that I was climbing. Uh, I was 20 and a moose comes and tries to stick its entire head with its antlers into my tent. Uh, in Africa, I'm on a safari and the gate wouldn't open and there was a lion, lioness coming after us. And it was like literally last minute that the gate closed as the lion was like launching towards us. Um, great white sharks in, in Africa in a cage, hammerhead shark. I was like on this bicycle that was planted into the bottom of the ocean. I'm scuba diving and sitting on this bike, trying to like ride it, pretending I'm riding it underwater, getting a picture. And then the picture full on has this massive hammerhead shark like floating above me that I had no idea was there. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, oh my gosh, what just what happened there? Um, snakes, I've had rattlesnakes uh, sw like swarm uh, go right between my my legs while belaying climbing partners, and um, sometimes while climbing, uh, like spiders uh, will, you know, they live in the cracks on the side of these mountains. So I'm up rock climbing and stick my hand into a crack that I think is just a clean handhold. And I've had birds, I've had rodents, I've had bats, I've had um, insects of all kinds like launch onto my hands while I'm hanging for my life on the side of a cliff and you have to just be calm and in the moment and, and not like flinch or jump back. Um, what are some, I mean, you see, uh, malaria, insects, like uh, mosquitoes have bit me and I got malaria and that stuck with me for a year. Um, I've encountered wolves, I've encountered bears, black and grizzly and polar alike. So I've been around some animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Aside from so malaria is a very uh, serious disease or um, yeah, if, if it's disease or, or whatever. But um, as, have you you've mes- mentioned many many lifetimes worth of scary animal encounters, and you're still here walking around like did you have did you sustain any serious injuries or like some kind of spider or snake bite that put you out for a few months or like any kind of you know gruesome injuries or you just like had some incredible you got like 35 lives you're you're making the cats jealous walking my but my buddy the other day was like john how do you want to how do you want to go and i was like i want to either have like head-to-head Legends of the Fall battle with like a grizzly bear or a or a mountain lion and like it's a draw and we both like the mountain lion goes back to its cave and I go like up to the hospital and then we both like pass away in the same like spiritual moment of <laughs> equality. That's, that's how I want to go. <laughs> um, to your question though, um, have I had any injuries? Not other than like bites or lacerations or um, uh, malaria was by far the worst that I got a strain of it that lasts it it hides in your liver so most people get a malaria which is most common in Africa that you get it once you either have to treat it and knock it out or else it kills you and it's a one-time occurrence I got malaria in that jungle in Indonesia because I ran out of um, prophylactic medication uh, and during that time, we were waiting to see what was going to happen, if we're going to walk out of the jungle or if we're going to go through the gold mine. Um, that's when malaria uh, got transmitted to me through these mosquitoes. And um, that lasted for over a year because it hides that, str- that strain hides in your liver when it doesn't have the resources it needs and it kind of builds strength in your liver. And then it, when it notices a weakness in your immune system, it comes out and attacks. And so it can only be treated when it comes out and attacks. It sort of sticks its neck out. And that, that was like every three to five days um, of fully debilitating chills followed by sweats. I mean, completely soaking a mattress um, followed by convulsions and nausea or I'm just puking my guts out and then complete exhaustion. And that whole episode would last like eight hours and then I'm done for the next 48 hours um, until the next episode comes. And that, that was the thing that was like physically the biggest result as a result of having been in the wilderness. Um, but for me, I mean, that sounds awful, but for me, having like all the joys of 20, 30 years of adventuring and for that to be the worst thing of uh, just having to deal with like a little bit of sickness, that was fully worth it. Yeah. Man, it seems like you are the sort of outlier, like survivor who made it through all that. Like you're the the one in the thousand <laughs> that, that made it through. I, mean, I hate to say, considering what you just said about uh, malaria, I hate to say unscathed, but um, I mean, just being charged by a lion and and making it through the the gate at the last second, all that stuff. I mean, uh, a moose. I mean, coming in your tent, um, moose are. What's plural for moose? Do you just say moose or? I'm I'm like, sure that it's moosei. I have no idea. Mooses? Yeah. Mises? Mooseye. <laughs> Mises are terrifyingly large animals. I can't They're imagine. Massive. I mean, golly, so many things there. That's uh, you're, you've had an incredible life, man. That is really cool. 
Thanks, Sean. It's it's definitely been a fun one. And um, there's this there's this balance that we all talk about in the climbing world or in mountaineering. It's your risk reward ratio. And it's the more you're willing to put your neck out there or to, to put yourself in situations that you think will bring you to life, the greater the reward will be. And there's something really magical about being in the wilderness and being your own rescue and being really face to face with the elements and the possibility of death that in contrast brings you to life. So yeah, these stories are like fun to tell and fun to like talk about and share. But the moment of being there convinces me each and every single time that it's that it's fully worth it to um to to accept that risk and say yes I'm willing to to step out of my comfort zone and see who I might become as a result and see how I might grow and see what adventure or moment will come as a result of making this choice that's awesome it kind of reminds me of um the show the the documentary free solo uh, where the yes. guy finds El Capitan. Have you? What are your thoughts on on that guy's mentality? Is that something where you kind of relate to, and you're like, yeah, he's like sort of uh, philosophically like a cousin of yours, or does he seem as odd to you as he as he does to me? <laughs> um, that's Alex Honnold. He lives here in Las Vegas as well. Uh, I've never met him. Love to, uh, and that's a perfect contrast where his risk reward ratio is different than mine, but it's also one that I can really respect. Um, he, he just, he knows and he acknowledges that he can push himself and he wants to push himself to, the, to see what he's made of and to see what he's capable of through the act of climbing without ropes. And Yosemite, I mean, the idea of climbing without a rope to most of us is like, I'd go climb my, to my roof of my house and without a rope like no yosemite has three thousand foot cliffs el capitan and the route that he took up the nose was something that i can't even do while roped up and the fact that he did that he wanted to see that he thought he could and he needed to see as a person if he could do that i i respect that immensely now that's that's the that's the admiration side the other side of that, though, is I don't think anybody would be surprised at all if he fell or if he falls, because I know that he's still free solos. So if he passes away at some point, I don't think anybody's going to be shocked. Will we'll be? I mean, the whole community will be devastated, of course. Um, and he acknowledges that if he falls in that moment, that that's the that's the choice and the decision he's made, and he's he's come to to peace with that. And maybe like somebody listening thinks oh, I'd never go climb in Indonesia or trek through a jungle or, or I'd never go climb El Capitan without a rope or, or I'd never take a risk to like leave my state. I mean, so, you know, there's people in the U.S. who have never taken a vacation out of the country, something like this. Like I'd never do that. Maybe there's a little bit to be learned about how much you can grow if you decide to just listen to what's calling to you personally and not worry about what calls to other people with yeah. with any level of criticism because we're all called in different ways 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like you. I have a ton of respect for his courage and drive. Um, I couldn't do what he does, but don't, um, you know, all the best to him. You know, <laughs> right, right. Um, um, yeah, I think that's just a perfect example of like we all have our different level of uh, of risk reward ratio, and his is a his is a larger willingness to take risk. And I think he has a larger reward that's come to him. I mean, he's like got, he's got an, he's in an Oscar winning film and he's uh, like got this huge following now and he started his, his Alex Honnold Foundation combating global warming. I mean, he's, he's got an incredible reward as a result of taking these risks in his life. That's cool. Hey, I want to hear uh, about Antarctica. What is that mountain like and, and what's the, the, journey there is it like a thousand mile you know car ride to get to the middle of the continent and is it a pretty smooth you know mountain or is it a jagged glacier what is it and and uh, what was your journey like getting there is an amazing adventure and it, we we say that it's like one of the the biggest part of getting there or the one of the biggest parts of the adventure is just getting there in itself so you take this airplane that's called an Ilyushin. It's a Russian aircraft. It can carry 80,000 pounds. And there are only, I think, two in the world that can go at this range that's required and carry that amount of weight. We leave from a town called Punta Arenas, which is in Chile, at the southern tip where South America comes to that point uh, down at the bottom. Uh, and it's kind of in those islands down there. And the airplane takes off, flies for five hours until it lands on the ice. And they found this two-mile-long natural ice sheet that is completely smooth because of how, how much winds go through there or the strength of the winds and the consistency of the winds. And so it's just made this, like, butterball-smooth landing strip. So the plane lands there, um, which is creepy in itself to land on on ice. Uh, the plane comes to a stop, and then we get out into diesel vans, and the vans took us to what's called Union Glacier Camp. And this is a exploration center run by a company called Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. And they just fully decided, like, hey, we're going to Antarctica, and we're making a camp, and it's going to be a tiny little village, and who's going to stop us? <laughs> and they did this... Uh, they, so they have this little outpost, this temporary outpost settlement that's there, and they run uh, adventures of all kinds. Uh, so from there, we take another airplane called a Twin Otter. And this airplane has skis instead of wheels. So it takes off from another airfield, lands at Vincent's base camp, and it's an uphill landing with the airplane having skis. So the the pilot has to actually start the landing from lower than where it's landing and then aim uphill and like make the proper angle to land on this uphill slope he then comes to a hockey stop and we unload all the gear and then the plane turns around and goes back down this snow slope and that moment when the plane takes away takes off and you just see it disappear off into the distance and you realize that you're there a thousand miles from mcmurdo station which is the closest permanent civilization if if you can even call it a civilization, that's a moment of, I am, we're fully here as a team. 
we're on our like this is all about our own competency right now and you hear the propeller blades last word in the in the air and then it comes it becomes completely silent the sun never sets the temperatures are consistently uh between 20 degrees fahrenheit and zero degrees uh and then we start climbing and it's an it's a 10-day total journey that it took us to summit and get back down and the mountain is gorgeous it's only white black and blue these are the only colors that we saw for this entire time there are no s smells and there are no animals at all there are no birds there's no critters there's no insects there's not even like fungus or algae that you can really see it's it's just white snow black rock and blue sky and that all gets blurred by the white clouds that kind of like morphs it all into one so to climb throughout you're, the go ahead you're in the the clouds is that what you're saying they're so high that they're kind of on the mountain there with you yeah i mean the cl the clouds would rise and drop and so it, it was like this this magical experience to sometimes have the cloud below you and see that you're above that cloud line then it comes up and you're trapped within the cloud and then the cloud will disperse and you'll see like a perfect rainbow circle around the sun from the refraction of the the moisture from the cloud which are like tiny little ice particles making it's called a sun dog which is wow. i mean it's a perfect ring around the sun uh and see these it really just like you're on your own you're in the middle of nowhere and it's phenomenally beautiful. Um, you climb for maybe eight hours per day uh, and dragging a sled behind you with the backpack on up to camp one. And then you go up a 40 degrees or so slope with ropes and ascenders. Ascenders are like a little hand tool that goes one direction up a rope. But then when you pull on it, it won't go back down. Uh, and so you use this to, to ascend and to go up this, this rope on this exposed section. Uh, and then we went for the summit on, on, on the final day. And up there, it's probably minus 30 degrees uh, and fully exposed. But it was really cool because the sun never sets. So you could leave at 6 p.m. and climb until 4 a.m. if you wanted to. And you still have just as much sunlight as you do at 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. I mean, it's really amazing to have the sun always up. How, yeah, how much sleep do you typically get? You mentioned a 10-day journey. What's your daily schedule look like? Uh, we would start climbing around 10 or 11 a.m., usually get back around I don't know, between 6 and 8 p.m. or get to wherever we were going around 6 or 8 p.m., and then it turned into like cooking and uh, um, evening, like get yourself ready for bed kind of stuff, set the tents up. And then once tents are set up, I would sleep from maybe 10 until two, and then couldn't sleep from like two till five, and then probably from five until eight or nine, I would sleep again. And I mean, it really just wake up, at, like whenever you wake up and grab a book or like go for a little walk and the sun is still up and bright. <laughs> okay, I guess wow. I'm feeling a little tired now. I guess I'll go back to bed. Wow. And you're um, like getting snow and boiling it to create water? Exactly, right. 
So just fill up a trash bag full of like a black, thick, heavy duty trash bag full of as much snow as it'll take before you uh, before it'll break or you fill the sled uh, like plastic little sled with snow and then take it over to wherever the cook station is. And we're all working as a team. Like one person is uh, the one boiling. You got some people who are bringing the snow over to you. Others are setting up tents. Others are um, digging or sawing blocks out of the ice, which we then use to protect the tents, um, like as windshields. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're like the mason layers making walls around the tents. Um, so we all have our, our designated tasks, but yes, melting snow. And then that's what we use to um, to usually, usually we were having freeze-dried meals, um, but we, we, we got to eat really well because with temperatures that cold, we could bring meats and dairy onto the ice and it was just refrigerated or frozen permanently for us. So we got to eat really well on that trip. Well, uh, any favorite meals from while you were out there? In Antarctica? Well, pizza nights, man. You can't beat that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And that's like uh, not not cooked with a brick oven. How do you go about doing pizza in Antarctica? Oh, uh, just pan fried. Like they were like single single serve pizzas that we just put into the pan and then kind of just flipped over like a pancake. Nice, man. And you mentioned a sled, and that's a sled that you guys are carrying with you, right? Because you're you're walking all day. You're not like driving a four wheeler. What is right. the sled like? It's just like a like a plastic two or three person kid sled. I mean, it's not like it's a fancy piece of equipment, um, and it doesn't have like blades like a uh, what's that Christmas movie? The one where he's <laughs> it's not like Kevin oh, McAllister yeah, yeah. like with blades. Like it's not wooden and metal. It's just like a plastic, uh, like the kind I have at Walmart in my garage. Yeah, for the kids ride down a hill on yeah and so you've got i mean it's it's convex is that the right or concave it's concave so you can like put your backpack in it or put a duffel bag in it and then it has some edges uh, and then you take some bungees or some rope and you you get it strapped down so that your stuff isn't going to fall out of it and you attach that to your backpack and then as you're walking um with your backpack on the sled gets dragged behind you Okay, so the weight's like kind of on your hips and and your shoulders. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. So it's to the point is so that you don't have so much weight on your boot points, because if you had all that weight in the sled on your back, then all of that gets dispersed across your boots, and then if you come to a weak spot in the ice where a crevasse might mm -hmm. be beneath you, that's going to cause you to punch through. And so you want to carry yeah. as little as possible on your back, and then that sled has such a wide distribution that the pressure per square inch is lowered immensely. So it's not only for comfort on yourself, but it's also for safety. And does everyone have a sled or are you taking turns as a team to shoulder that load? Uh, everybody has a sled. And so you've got both your own gear in it as well as group gear. So one guy might be carrying like the pots and pans as his group uh, contribution. Another might be carrying a tent. Another might be carrying um, like the, the bathroom equipment, uh, and so on. So every, so all the group stuff is split up. Speaking of the team, you mentioned teamwork. I can imagine that environment is absolutely critical. You need to be operating like a well-oiled machine. I imagine you're choosy before you even think about going on a trip with someone and you're probably like doing a lot of prep work before leaving 
um have you first off is that accurate and second have you had any instances where someone panicked or freaked out or wasn't able to um work as a member of the team um yes and in respect for those who have panicked or freaked out i don't want to share their stories to i guess embarrass even if i even not giving names it's just sure, like sure 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 like like i've panicked and freaked out on mountains and i've not been able to hold my weight and i've been like the jerk teammate at times and i wouldn't want those stories <laughs> told about me so i want to give right, that same no, respect back to those I, I appreciate your honesty and and saying that sometimes it was you and i i think when you're in such an extreme environment like that i as an outsider, I say there's no shame in it. You know, I mean, there every mm. everybody on that team is doing something so far above and beyond what I would um, imagine doing myself. And so, um, anyway, but but I'd just be curious to hear like what the times when it did when when someone did struggle in that team environment, like what were the consequences? What what were the stakes? Like, did someone need to help carry them or their stuff? Like, how does how do you even go about that? And and um, Please do keep everything anonymous, but just kind of fascinated to hear about the um, the interdependency in a high stakes environment. Yeah, sure. So the mental game is the most important. And if somebody starts panicking or freaking out or thinking that they're going to be stuck there forever or like like this myopic view that this is going to be the place where they die, um, those are the moments that that sometimes the proverbial slap across the face, like bro just cut it out get get this thought out of your head this is not the way it's going to be listen to every word i'm going to say to you right now shut up like sometimes that's needed and like just that that whip them out of their mindset sometimes that's the right call other times compassion is the right call and like sometimes people just need a little bit of coddling like yeah you need to vent you need to complain you need to get it out let it out um when somebody is physically and I've been in this situation when I physically can't cut it. Like my lungs are ten, tend to fill up with fluid in a condition called pulmonary edema. And that's happened on several mountains where I've just flat out needed to turn back and leave the team behind um, and let them go on their journey uh, and say that, well, this isn't, this isn't the climb for me today and I need to go back down and heal. Um, and so that then re usually requires somebody going with them uh, and then making a plan for that person who's gone with them to go rejoin the team. So it slows everybody down. Um, and that's one, these are kind of my qualifications for the times when I do choose a team myself. I make sure first that I'm going to really enjoy being with each and every person who's there. If, if it's not going to be fun or if it's going to be like a struggle to hold conversation and you're eight days in and you just start getting irked or irritated with the person you're with it doesn't matter how qualified or skilled or of a climber they are like sometimes you just want to be out like having a good time with your buddies right however however that's not everything so fun is like or just like good company is the first qualification second is is this person technically competent um and if they don't have that trait, they don't get to be a part of the expedition that requires that level of expertise. And then my third qualification is, is this person vulnerable when they need help? Will they, will they ask for help? 
Will they say, hey, my boots are too tight, my fingertips are cold, I'm feeling weak right now, I need to stop for a break? If somebody doesn't go there, that will always compound into a larger problem. And it also cuts off permission for me and the rest of the teammates to express the same when, when we need to ask for those moments or that help. So the ability to ask help is the third qualification for any teammate that I, that I choose. That is such a good point. I've, I don't think I'd ever thought of that, but the ability to ask for help is very important, like you said. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's crucial. So without all three of those, I don't, I don't take somebody on a trip um, or I don't, I don't form them as a part of the team. However, on trips like Antarctica, Everest, those were guided expeditions where that company got to choose. And so it wasn't up to me who I went with. And sometimes, I mean, often you have personality clashes. You've got A-type personalities that are often wanting to flex and to prove themselves and to be oh, the head honcho of the group. And um, I mean, imagine like... 12 dudes who are all like out in the mountains wanting to show how badass they are by climbing mountains. And those are the personalities that you've thrown together in close quarters. It's, it can be pretty intense sometimes. <laughs> I'm sure. Especially yeah. like the, uh, the super loud mouth touristy person who's the tough guy shows up, um, you know, with a quarter of the amount of experience that you have and you meet them on, on Everest, um, where, you you don't, probably don't need as much uh, guidance as they do or help, but um, I could imagine that being an interesting uh, melting pot with of personalities. It definitely it gets interesting. It's also like really cool as a reflection of who you are and who you want to show up show up as because you go in and you have these like kind of short life spans in the mountains. You go on a 10-day expedition, usually like you go and you meet these people and they reflect a certain personality type and you get to kind of study and understand who they are and then you can go back to your life and say, oh, maybe maybe they taught me something that I want to be or they taught me something that I of how I don't want to be. Mm. And you, you grow as a result. And so uh, I've I've kind of stepped away from like, holy shit, I hate that person. I can't stand being around them. And I've switched it over to, okay, that person is showing up right now as this personality. And what can I learn from this? And how can I, how can I grow as a human being as a result of who they are? Look at you, man. That is some wisdom right there. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Um, all right. This popped into my head as we were talking these trips sound one incredible you've got me interested in at least trying to some uh small scale climbing how do you go about like I, i'm at a trip to antarctica just the logistics alone let alone like time away from work is a significant investment and i've heard estimates of the cost to climb everest and all these other ones like how do you and if this is too personal we can edit this out of the interview but like how do you go about financing all of this? Um, no, great, great question. And not too personal. Um, I'm a motivational speaker. It's my job. And it started with telling rock climbing stories and relating it to what I've learned about success. And the better I got at speaking, uh, the more money I'd make. And um, that funded larger climbs. And then the bigger climbs I went on, 
gave me better stories to go back and tell motivational speeches with larger-than-life examples. So they grew together. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very intentional business person. Uh, I've built websites, membership sites, um, in the subjects of dog training, horse training, public speaking, traveling, uh, and those are able to be stepped away from while still making money if I create the right processes. Um, the book, The E-Myth, I think E-Myth 2.0 by Michael Gerber was transformational in that in every task I complete, I'm making it a process that I can hand to someone else or step away from. So if I'm like yeah. crafting a customer response uh, for our customer support email, uh, I'm making it as a template at the same moment that I'm responding to that person. So it takes a little bit longer overall to execute the day-to-day -day tasks, but then it becomes handoffable uh, to where I can step away and the business runs without me there in the moment. And I've done that for everything that I've worked on. I've done that for speaking. I've done that for uh, the membership sites that I've made. And now I have this like camper van rental side hustle that I'm doing the same thing. Like I've got other people cleaning the vans. I've got people uh, responding to customers and I'm just, I've stepped away from it. And it's awesome to have like this, this side income coming in. Dude, that is awesome. Um, <laughs> props to you. And uh, it's funny, I, I haven't heard anyone mention the E-Myth. Uh, I read E-Myth Revisited. I don't know if that's the 2.0 version. It probably is. Yeah, I think that's or, it. Or similar, but um, I just mentioned that like two or three episodes ago on the podcast, talking to an entrepreneur about cool books. And I was like, have you heard of this one anyway? So it's funny you you mentioned that, but what a cool book. Um, also, tinges of uh, a four-hour work week, you know? Um, also probably, a yeah. huge influence, exactly. That intentional lifestyle design and uh more i mean more than tinges that one was was one of the first things that made me say all right i'm gonna go start adventuring absolutely four hour work week yeah that's cool um all right so i've this has been so as you can tell i'm like really interested in hearing about all this, this climbing but um we, we i do want to talk to you about your book but before we go there anything on we've talked about so many cool experiences but anything on uh climbing everest i know a lot's been said a lot's been written a lot of pictures of what it's like about everest but um anything that maybe the average person doesn't know or you feel like should know or uh, just a cool story from your time climbing everest that you want to share i think it's really fascinating the attitude that's starting to be um taken to everest I, I, I'm hearing more and more negative about it. I'm hearing people say that, oh, there's trash everywhere, or it's just like a heap of bodies that you have to climb over in order to get to the summit. And I hear people saying like the joy and the magic of climbing the world's tallest mountain is taken away and it's nothing special anymore. And this is, in my mind, 90% false information uh, that's been exaggerated through a global game of telephone that it's totally distorted for what it's actually like to climb combined with an excuse to not uh chase the dreams that that you have like oh yeah i would never go climb everest because uh, this this and that well would you actually want to climb it or is that just like the excuse that you're creating to not 
go after whatever big thing it is that you want to go after? Or are you just trying to pick a target to like take somebody else down, take somebody else's dream down in order to feel better about yourself? I think there's a lot of like there's a lot of that involved and I mean it goes with the territory for the bigger the bigger the thing you go after in life the more critics you will have and I always take that as a measurement of whether I'm on course or not if there aren't people criticizing and if people aren't giving backlash I don't think I'm doing something big enough or doing it well enough or or my dream isn't large enough so I think that that's, that's a real indicator of, um, of something that's big and special. So I guess like more specific to actually climbing the mountain, it takes two months to climb it. The mountain's very clean in my uh, experience there. Every year it gets cleaner because we have to take out the same amount of weight that we go in with, which means we have to replace our food weight with trash weight that we, that we exit with. Most climbers are skilled and know what they're doing. Um, and while the mountain certainly has its share of problems, it's also still the world's biggest mountain. And it is a gem of an adventure and a laudable, like amazing accomplishment for anybody who takes those steps to the top. I don't think you can buy your way to the top. You might be able to buy some comfort at each camp, but anybody who climbs that mountain even if they don't have a lot of weight on their back and they've paid like the top dollar to have most of their stuff carried, they still took every single step to the top of Everett. And I will never, ever criticize somebody who, who made it happen for themselves. I like your, your attitude and take on that. That's a certainly commendable achievement. And, and it's interesting to hear your, um, I, I haven't heard what you just said, previously about the, uh, you know, trash and people viewing it in a negative light. Um, and like you said, a global game of telephone from the people who have actually been there. I wonder if it's, um, you know, I know you're passionate about global warming. Uh, I think it's all, always important to be mindful of our, our climate and, you know, the quality of our resources. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, maybe some people take it and run with it to exaggerate what it's like if there's occasional pieces of trash here or there, you know, then that comes into, Oh, Everest, Everest is trashed. I don't know. Interesting. Yep. I don't know why that, why that has taken off like that. Honestly, in like the, the eighties and nineties, there was a good amount of trash that was left behind and that got reported on, I think accurately by reporters who actually went there and saw it or climbers who were there. And then those stories got continued and perpetuated without actual journalists seeing what the conditions are like now. Um, every, mm -hmm. every climber I talked to said, yeah, this mountain seemed pretty clean. I don't know why these stories are going around that there's like heaps in, of, of trash everywhere. And there's great efforts done each year to make it cleaner and cleaner. Um, it's just a beautiful place. That's cool. That is cool. So you, you recently wrote a book um, about teaching young boys about kindness, courage, and grit. The book looks really cool. It's, it's got, uh, each chapter is like a different, um, story and challenge. Um, I've, I was kind of hooked as soon as I saw it and the idea of it, I feel like in general, there's too much content for young boys. That's, um, teaching them to be wusses. Um, and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. they, they've got this like, you know, diaries, a wimpy kid or dog man, or, um, I don't know, Captain Underpants. I'm just like, 
I saw yours is about, um, you know, warrior. It's almost like a um, progressing through a video game or a, a, a cool comic book that's teaching them like important lessons. So um, tell like, how did you come up with the idea for it? And, and tell us a little about like the content, what's, what's in there? What are the main takeaways? I realized that my climbing adventures were my rite of passage. I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier that this was this whole climbing ex expedition was all these expeditions were my transition from boyhood to manhood. And you're absolutely right that I, I think that there are like all this kind of like encouraging the wussiness of, of young men that is problematic. And that's the lightest way that I can put it in that there are there's a full culture of grown males who are still boys. And if people are complaining that man boys are everywhere, that real men don't exist any longer, then why continue to push these materials, like you said, of like wimpy like yeah. <laughs> weakness? Now, that was kind of my intent, my original approach is I want to make this like badass uh, training grounds for men to grow up or for boys to grow up with like a little more edge of toughness. And so I made it as a rite of passage. Yet, the publisher, Penguin Random House, their intent was to, in, in this book, uh, was to prevent a future Me Too 2.0 movement. And the more I started researching that angle, the more I saw that both of our intents were actually the same. Um, because what is, what is a warrior's real purpose? Or what does a man do in the world that makes a man a man? In my opinion, he's able to look after himself and he's able to protect his society or his people in need or his tribe. And those, those two things go hand in hand. So how does a guy grow up using his natural strengths or when he hits puberty, these, these like new fresh energies in order to uplift, in order to strengthen his community, in order to um, build off of his vision and his purpose? in a way that expresses kindness or in a way that that has compassion built into it in a way that understands that others who are different get to be different and that's fine um and that they're bringing that my attention made this in my opinion into an infinitely stronger and more well-rounded book and resource so, so these were kind of the two voices that came to it that now it is what it is. And you're right, there's like a comic book artist who illustrates each chapter and it's like gritty Frank Miller style art in each chapter. Johnny Dombrowski is the, the name of the, the illustrator. And I couldn't be prouder of this book. And I think that any young man who goes through it is going to have his life dramatically improved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because if you think like probably 50 years ago, and I'm just guessing here, what do I know? But it seems like if there was a, a manual on going from boys to men, it probably doesn't include like kindness, you know, it's, it's be about toughness and grit and providing and everything, but it's 2020 now. And, um, I, you know, my worry is the kids are like growing up in this like artificially soft environment where there's too much focus on like kindness, not enough on like determination and overcoming obstacles and being a badass. And, and, and then the kids turn out to be, you know, um, spineless to society. Yeah. And so, but then it's like, okay, if you compare kindness with 
courage and grit and being a badass put them together well that's even better than either scenario you know right yeah i mean in the 50s let's say the the model back then was exactly what you said like tough it out grit through it get it done at all costs which is like the classic picture of of the masculine and i think rightfully so that pendulum got swung in the opposite direction because what we saw happening and what still you see is like that results in post-traumatic stress disorder that results in alcoholism that results in repressing of what's really going on underneath and and mental health disorders so it got swung but i think the pendulum swung a little bit too far in the opposite direction to where it's just like be soft be uh be nice and i think niceness is different than kindness niceness is from a place of like put up a facade a picture of what you think other people will be happy with and placate and please and and be a people pleaser versus kindness is saying here's the fullness of my strength and i'm making an uh, intentional decision to make other people's lives better as much as i can and as much as it doesn't get in the way of my my own needs as well um and that distinction is laid out i think quite clearly in in this book like here's the difference of being kind versus nice Awesome. Yeah. Tell, walk us through. Um, I saw that you've got like a chapter about, um, Mazai warriors. Um, I've heard a little bit about the Mazai people from all the different big cat documentaries I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also saw, you've got a chapter about somebody who rode a skateboard over the, the great wall of China. Um, like what are, what are some of these stories in, and what are the, some of the takeaways for the kids? So there are eight quests, and each quest has a hero that exemplifies a real-life, like, historical human, if I can say this on the podcast, badass, like a total rock star at life who crushed it at something. And in order to accomplish what he did, he had to exemplify one of these traits that, that are the eight quests. And so the reader is in those stories. And so in, in challenge one, you are confronted by a Maasai warrior who asks you to hunt and kill a lion. And this is a real life guy. His name is Kakuta Hamisi. He lives in um, Kenya and he's the head of the Maasai Association. And that was the rite of passage for young men ages like 12, 13 years old for uh, until 2009 to hunt and kill a lion if you wanted to be in the warrior class in the Maasai tribes. Um, challenge, and, and that teaches, here's how to step up. Here's how to make a, a decision to improve yourself. And that's the first step of becoming a warrior is, is saying, I, I want more than the path that society or culture has put out for me. I want to step up and, and intentionally become something better or discover who I can become. Challenge two, Danny Wei, he's a professional skateboarder. He jumped over the Great Wall of China on a broken ankle. And this chapter teaches self-awareness, how to observe what's going on in your body, how to see your emotions, how to see the patterns that your mind uh, speaks to you, and how to see what your inner roommate is, what I like to call from um, the language of a guy named uh, Michael Singer, uh, these negative voices that we all have in our head, how to distinguish those from who you are as a person. Uh, challenge three, you are off-road racing, in Baja, Mexico, 
And there's a gentleman named Dennis Hollenbeck who, who did not finish the race on time because he was racing in a Volkswagen bug down this 1,200 mile, miles of obstacle courses and death traps in Baja, Mexico. Yeah. And his, his whole intent in racing was to raise money for this battered, battered women's and children's shelter. Well, by not winning, he actually ended up getting more attention and donations than he would have had he finished on time. And so he actually won his race. So I, I distinguish that, right? So I distinguish, like, here's how to choose what your actual finish line is versus the finish line that others have put out for you. Here's how to choose what really matters, which means your values and to create a warrior creed um, for, for your life. Here's what defines your own success. After that, I talk about my adventures in, on Mount Everest and how to be vulnerable in the right circumstances, how to say, hey, here's what's actually going on and here's what has hurt and here's how to like, appropriately um, find compassion when it's needed. So I'm not like the kind of person that says, uh, just like share your deepest, darkest secret with everybody and anybody who will listen, but how do, how do you appropriately choose the people who to share with. Um, then we talk about setting boundaries. Uh, there's a guy named Wally Sturbu who I met in Indonesia and he, get this, he's in Romania, raised there. It's a communist country. He wants to escape because he wants to travel the world, but Romania wouldn't let him. So he buys bottles of seal blubber, smears them all over his body as this makeshift wetsuit. Then in March, he swims across the icy river, the Danube River, to Yugoslavia, hitchhikes across Yugoslavia, still covered in like seal blubber as he's like scraping it off of himself through the forest. Uh, hitchhikes, finally finds uh, the border of Austria, but guards there catch him, knock him unconscious, put him into a tank, and the tank drives him to a prison. He's in prison for a year. He decides... I'm going for it again. He buys the seal blubber from the same market, successfully makes his way to the border, gets across into Austria, starts applying for asylum in all, uh, any country that will take him. And the, U United, the United States ends up taking him, and he is now a retired Chicago City firefighter. So no he's way. a <laughs> crazy story that like, uh, I couldn't believe it when he told me this story. Um, but I use him as the example of how to set boundaries. Um, uh, how, do, how do you say, here's what I stand for, here's what I accept in my life, here's what I don't accept. If you want to hang out with me, this is the standard that you need to live up to. And I think that that's something that kids don't get today. Um, challenge five is about how to choose the right people to form your team with. And we kind of already talked about some of these qualifications. Of how do you find people who will uplift you, who will respect your boundaries, who are fun to be around, who are technically competent. Um, and the stories, the story that is related to this is Kevin Jorgensen and Tommy Caldwell, who are in that same lineage as Alex Honnold. They cli they're climbers in, in Yosemite. Then you're Ernest yeah. Shackleton, learning grit and resilience and how to overcome any obstacle. Uh, and Shackleton was it, trapped in the ice in Antarctica. His boat sank through the ice and he has like 60 men that he has to rescue um, or, and get oh, wow. or, sorry, 20, 24 men to get home and like 60 do sled dogs. So we break down what did Shackleton do in order to rescue all his men and save every single one of them. 
Um, then we go into the story of an NFL player who stopped toxic relationships that were in his life. And then finally, we end with Robert Smalls, who is a Civil War hero. Um, in my mind, he's the most underrated hero of American history. He was a, uh, uh, a Confederate. Uh, he was a slave in the Confederate uh, side of the war. And from, from Charleston, South Carolina, he stole a boat, a warship, pirated it off into the ocean um, and just straight up like waved goodbye to the to the Confederate army and sailed the boat uh, up to the Union and then joined their side and ended up convincing Abraham Lincoln to allow uh, former slaves to fight in the Union uh, or blacks to fight in the wow. Union. And historians will say that without that extra oomph of, of firepower that the Union would have lost. And so this guy, in my mind, is who caused history to be turned in the way that it was. Um, and he teaches how to choose your battleground. So these are like the stories, and there's a lot there. It's not an e like not an easy book to go through, but it's epic. It seems like one that you want to you don't want to just like re cruise through. You want to like take your time and digest it and try to absorb it. One of the best compliments or my favorites was when my uh, an army ranger friend of mine read it and he said, "This book has nutrition." And I really loved hearing that. Like, yeah, you want to sit and absorb it and take those bites of each chapter and like let those stories sink in and become a part of you. I, I really think that this book should be read three, four, five times in order to really like take in the like an an eight year old reading it is going to take different things than a fifteen year old, and a fifteen year old th will take different things than a thirty year old. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that I, I really, I mean, I'm. I know that sounds arrogant, but I really think that this thing merits multiple reads over different ages. For sure. And it's, I like that it's not all just all coming from one, one person. You've got wisdom from a variety of people and backgrounds and experiences. Right. Right. And that was, that was very intentional. Like I could have written a book about here's all my mountaineering stories that just would have been from my perspective, but that doesn't do justice to men in general because not everybody's a mountaineer and so i wanted to show what and i interviewed heaps of people about what their perspectives of being a man is men and women both of all different uh uh demographics to get a real as accurate a picture as i could through my lens of here's here's what it takes to step up with these traits of kindness courage and grit that's awesome. Um, do you have a few minutes to do a couple sort of general life questions before I let you go? Let's do it. All right. How has a failure or significant obstacle in your path set you up for later success? The first of the seven summits I attempted to climb is called Aconcagua. It's the tallest mountain in South America. It took me four attempts to climb it. On the first attempt, I wasn't technically proficient. On the second and third attempt, I wasn't physically prepared enough. And it was on the fourth attempt that I succeeded and I took those, the sting of those failures to Everest. And without the sting of those failures, I for sure would have not made it up Everest. 
Really? Yep. Um, what about like, what was the situation at Everest that would have been too much for you had you not learned those lessons in South America? Um, in South America, the one gentleman fell and that rocked me emotionally. Uh, he was, he had become a friend that we had just met on the mountain and he fell and passed away. And then a storm came in and killed two others and prevented us from climbing higher. And by then we were exhausted. Well, same things happened in different stories on Everest. Um, there was a climber who, who fell that we saw fall. Um, and then um, a storm caused several others to pass away while on Everest. And had I not had that kind of, uh, I guess, emotional endurance, I would not have made it to the top had I not already learned how to process moments like that. What is that like? I mean, when you see someone fall, are you... I'd imagine you're probably in close proximity, maybe attached to a rope or like what goes through your mind when, when you see someone plummeting to their death. So on, on, uh, Aconcagua, I was not in close proximity. I just saw his body after he had already fallen. I saw it from afar. Um, and same thing on Everest. I was looking at this climber through a telescope and, um, looking at him and oh yeah there he is and then stepped away and then looked back and um, couldn't find him in the lens and then I heard the whole camp in commotion so I was not up close and personal with those but that doesn't mean that others weren't and that like it didn't emotionally sit with me quite heavy um, what is it like uh, you of course feel for that person you question what you're doing there you question why you're like putting your own life at risk and if is there anything you could have said or done that would have changed the circumstance for that person? Um, I have been up close and personal with other deaths that haven't resulted from a fall. Uh, and same thing go through your mind just now with like graphic images that are, uh, that are up close with you. And for me, it, it took sitting down with the therapist to, to break those moments down and to heal from them and to not place blame on myself, the survivor's guilt. And, um, it was it was a challenge often to for many years to to have those memories and and to be able to process and work through them and i'm happy to say now that i'm I'm healed from them but it, they were very real moments wow i bet yeah i whew, i have i haven't gotten my head into the headspace of i want to go climb a you know life-threatening mountain but I have to imagine, like, if somehow I was transported there and I saw someone or, you know, knew of someone who, who passed away a couple hundred yards from me, I would immediately think, this just got real. I'm ready to go home. I, like, I want to tap out. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what we did on Aconcagua. We tapped out. We said, like, this is too real. And we, we left on that first expedition. And that's, like, that's exactly why I say that I wouldn't have summited Everest, because I would have tapped out as many people did after several of the deaths. Right. And they're looking at you as like, man, those crazy people that want to keep going. But <laughs> yeah. you, you've been there. You've been through that same grieving process. You've been through therapy. You you know why you're there and why you're not there. You know what the risks are. You're more like self-aware and situationally aware, I guess. Right. And I, I'm aware that those deaths weren't my fault and that we're all making the same decision together, accepting this risk reward ratio. 
and that's the choice we've all made in coming and uh that's that's unfortunately a part of the game but that's also part of what makes it beautiful and had i not figured all that stuff out what you just said and what i just added to it i would have crumbled under the circumstances of everest mm. wow um Okay, next question here. What is something you've changed your mind on in the last five years? Oh, great question. Something I've changed my mind on in the last five years is the number of countries that I want to travel to. Uh, I used to, like, want to get just tons of passport stamps and... Uh, travel, 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 and just get on airplane and touch down and like, yeah, I made it and take off the next one. Now I'm more about the richness of the experiences. And I would way rather get to a place that I love and spend a good amount of time there or even stay still in the United States. That's something I've, I've learned this year, in particular, 2020 with coronavirus. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I've never been still for so long. And I've found some, yeah. real, I've found some real joys in being still. I mean, really simple things like I watched a, my cactus out front, like bloom a flower. And each day I'd be like running outside, like, let me see what's up with the flower of the cactus. And I'd never done something like that before. And it sounds so like simple and silly, but I, I like in the slowing down, I found real beauty in those moments. Uh, and that's something I've changed my mind on is like this need to, to be moving, moving. And, and maybe in a way that's like running, running. Uh, and now I can root and be grounded, and I find real pleasure and joy in that. Good for you, man. Um, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Um, that I am of value without needing to prove it or without any accomplishment without any dollar value of income that's coming in uh but just as a human being uh, i bring all that i need to the table and if i don't have what i need i can i have the resources to figure it out like if i if i was stripped bare of all of my possessions all of my friendships even my family i mean of course i would hate it but i have everything that i need Wow. Period. Period. Yeah, that's the end of the sentence. <laughs> um, as you look towards the future, tell me one thing that you feel optimistic about. I feel optimistic about people having a reset moment and a, a moment of being able to intentionally choose how they want to live moving forward. And in the amount of pain and, and struggle that has been revealed or, or brought to the surface in the last year, with, with that struggle comes growth and, and comes new perspective and comes compassion. And as much as I like hate that it has happened, I immensely appreciate the increase of family connections, of people valuing community, people valuing values and treatment of one another's of one another 
And I think that, mm. I think that if it, I think there's a real opportunity for us to, us to grow as a, as a country in the U S or as a world in a way that values humanity better moving forward with the right choices. Sure. Um, do you have any shows or podcasts you want to plug to the listeners before we let you go? I'm creating a documentary about each of the seven summits. So I've done one for Denali, which is the tallest mountain in Alaska. I've done one for Kilimanjaro and for Mount Vinson in Antarctica. Uh, and so if anybody wants to watch those, you can go to my website. It's johnbeedy.com, J-O-H-N-B-E-E-D-E.com. If uh, you'd like to, in fact, if you have a child who's between the ages of eight and 16 and uh, you're, it's your grandson, it's your son, it's your nephew, it's a student of yours, buy this book, The Warrior Challenge, head to Amazon, type in that phrase, The Warrior Challenge, it's the bright red cover you're looking for, and gift the book to him. It will genuinely change his life. And so those are the two resources I'd like to offer. Nice. And finally, what is a good cause you wish more people knew about? The two that I'm most passionate about are uh, the so the the Alex Honnold Foundation actually is combating global warming. So that's an awesome cause that I would I would love for support for him. Uh, and then the other is the David Lynch Foundation which teaches uh, a meditation technique which prevents post-traumatic stress disorder and he teaches it in inner cities. Uh, and I think that those two together are, are beautiful causes. That is awesome. Um, John, I've had a blast having you on. I'm just uh, getting ready to wrap over here. And then I remembered I have one uh, question submitted by one of my listeners who I was, I was supposed to ask you this a while ago. Do you have another minute to, uh, <laughs> let's do it. Splice it in All later. Right. This can be the bonus at the end. Let's do it. So this is from Josh, who's a senior product manager at Amazon. He nice. said, mountaineering is an activity where success is anything but guaranteed. What frameworks or criteria do you use when faced with risk to make sure you're making the optimal decision? and not getting caught up in the moment of things? Beautiful question from Josh. Summit fever is a real thing. And I don't think that the top is the goal. I think that home is the goal. I think that's actually a quote from Ed Vesters, who lives up near you. Uh, he's on Mercer Island, I believe, uh, right outside of Seattle, where I th I, I'm guessing that you are. And the metrics that I use to make sure that I don't get caught up in those moments of, I have to get to the summit, um, are remembering what the true goal is, which is getting home safely. Um, and another metric that I use is time, remembering that the mountain will always be there and I can return to it at any time is so valuable uh, that, hey, maybe this is the right mountain to climb but it's just not the right time to climb it because of the weather is bad or there's conditions that you know, the snow isn't firm enough or the ice isn't the right quality right now. 
Um, and so taking myself out of the immediacy of needing to do it right now and remembering what the true goal is, just getting home and bringing the lessons from the mountain back to my everyday life, that's what prevents me from getting summit fever. Hmm. Awesome. I like that. Thank you for, for uh, answering that. John, I've had a blast having you on. Um, I'm excited to, for my kids to read your book. And um, I'll probably listen to this one again just to absorb a little more of your uh, stories. And so for anyone who wants to find you to, you know, check out your documentaries to maybe hire you as a guest speaker or um, find your book or find you on social, where can people find you? Best place is johnbeedy.com, J-O-H-N-B-E-E-D e.com uh, that's also my full name so if you search on any social media site uh, i've got a profile under that name and the one i use the most where you can like see photos and and what i'm up to recently is instagram so just search for john Beatty on instagram and that's where you can follow my adventures awesome dude thank you so much for coming on and i hope you have a great night same sean thanks so much for having me it was a real pleasure to be chatting with you Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, please consider telling someone about the podcast. You could talk to someone or send a text message. You could even fold them a sweet origami swan that has dad conversations written inside it. Or you could share an episode on social media, maybe even write a review of the podcast on your podcasting app. If you think the podcast sucks, that's totally cool. And I want to know why. Please send me any constructive criticism, such as a new question you'd like me to ask or a request to stop saying um. Also, feel free to send unconstructive hate mail or whatever's on your mind. You can find me at Sean Radvansky on LinkedIn or DM Dad Conversations on Twitter. Whatever you do, I hope you have a great day.